Did You Know Holiday Edition that NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, began tracking Santa in 1955? Welcome to the Lore of the South. Follow the show on social media to keep up with what's going on and to see pics that go along with each episode. Search for Lore of the South on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Welcome back to Lore of the South with me, Kelly Cruz. How the heck are y'all doing? It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, y'all. Well, maybe it is up north, but it's 80 here. I started writing this the weekend before Thanksgiving, and so far... My plan for December is to give y'all two cold weather spooky episodes that are straight out of the South. That's right, y'all. December is going to be a field trip episode month. But before we get into the episode, let's see if we can find any holiday-worthy history-making news. This story comes from Wiki. The Rockefeller Christmas tree got its start while the center was under construction when Italian-American construction workers pulled their money together and bought a 20-foot balsam fir tree. The workers' wives and children made the many garlands that decorated that first tree. It brought cheer and hope to the many who passed through what was to be one of the busiest plazas in New York City, Rockefeller Center. During one of the darkest times in U.S. history, the Great Depression, the tree became an official tradition two years later in 1933, with the first lighting ceremony, the skating rink opened below the tree on the plaza in 1936. During wartime in the 40s, the tree, and one year even trees, went and lit due to the coastal blackout rolls. But the Rockefeller tree still stood proud, draped in its patriotic finery. By the 50s, the popularity and the size of the tree had grown so much that it now required 20 full-time decorators and its own scaffolding, and a total of nine days to fully decorate the huge tree. All of this in time for the 1951 first televised lighting of the famous tree, and it has been a tradition ever since. We don't get much cold weather down here in Florida, But the myths and legends that come from places that do have a cold climate fascinate me. Over the last few years, we've covered a few, like the helpful Tomty, the tricksterish Yule Lads and their mom Grula, and the good old Yule Cat snatching up the bad kids that didn't get any new clothes for Christmas. So I thought, why not keep up the tradition and find some more winter creatures to talk about? Now to decide what order I should cover them in and start with the creepy and end with the cute, but maybe deadly. You know what? Let's just make it completely random. I'll write down the descriptions of each creature and then I'll randomly pick out a name, a name out of the hat, and that's the creature we'll talk about. And it just so happens we have a top hat to use because producer Mike was Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer one year for Halloween, and that costume would not have been complete without a top hat. 
So let me pause to write these guys' names down and we'll see who gets to go first. All right, Magic Hat says it's the Wendigo up first. And I think lots of us are familiar with this guy, but let's see why he is so bloodthirsty. The Wendigo is a Native American legend from tribes in the Great Lakes region that stretches all the way up into Canada. The old legends stem from the Algonquin and Ojibwe and warns of the horrors of being caught off guard in a long winter by not having enough foodstuffs to get you through it. A Wendigo is created when a human resorts to cannibalism. Here are a couple of descriptions from the Algonquin and Ojibwe peoples. A giant with a heart of ice. It is thought to be entirely made of ice. Its body is skeletal and deformed with missing lips and toes. And then here's the next description. It was a large creature, as tall as a tree, with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man or woman or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead, and then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. It is also said that no matter how much it ate or how many people it eats, it is always starving. The Wendigo could eat an entire village and still be starving. The Wendigo should be avoided, y'all. Oh, look, at least we've pulled a kind of cute little guy out of the hat this time. It's the Badabagatsi. And every time I see or read this, I think of Nate Bergatzi, the comedian. He has a type of gnome that lives in the French Alps along the Swiss border. They thrive in the coldest of weather. And therefore, the Badabagatsi hibernates in the spring and summer. He hibernates the spring and summer away, waiting for the ice and snow to really set in before emerging. He looks like most gnomes, with only a few differences. He has a long white beard that looks like a cas cascading fall of icicles. His body is covered in white fur that looks like a full-body jumpsuit or coveralls, maybe. And at least one thing sets him apart from other gnomes. He has enormous feet. Then he uses the skis. He seems to be the helpful type, sometimes warning hikers about impending avalanches, even digging out trapped victims from under the snow. The Barbagazzi has even been known to return shepherds' lost flocks of sheep that went missing during snowstorms. And that was the Barbagazzi. Let's see who's next. Let's see what wintry horror we pull from the hat next. Okay, y'all. Wendigos are scary, but this next guy, holy heck, it is the Scottish Nuclevee from the Orkney Islands. And he is the thing of flipping nightmares. 
thought that the Wendigo was in. But this thing, holy heck. The Neclavi is said to have absolutely no redeeming qualities. He is pure evil. He climbs from the frozen North Sea to spread disease, drought, famine each winter. At first you see what you think is a horse coming out of the water, but it's stripped clean of all of its flesh. As it comes further onto shore, you see a rider growing from the fleshless beast's back. It too is fleshless, like the horse. It's all muscle, veins, and sinew holding it together. The rider's head is three times too big for the body, and it lolls around, kind of like a humanoid bobblehead. His arms are so long, they drag the ground alongside the creature's feet. Now, to further describe the horse-like portion, its long legs have fin-like appendages that help it swim during the aquatic portion of its life. The Nuclevi has one red glowing eye in the center of its horse's head, like an equine cyclops. Its black blood can be seen pulsing through its yellow rubber band-like veins. Its circulatory system is shared with the body that grows from its back, and the pulsing black blood can also be seen threading its way through the man's veins as well. The horse's mouth is agape, and plumes of toxic and noxious fumes pour from its gaping maw. As it travels the countryside in the dark winter, wherever it passes, both livestock and the young fall ill and might even perish. If the Nuclevi is spotted, it surely means that the next year will be one of drought and famine. The only thing that the Nuclevi fears is fresh water, and his name is very rarely spoken in most rural areas that still fear his winter land wanderings. Now let's see where the hat sends us. Oh, on a trip to the mountains of Japan to visit the Yuki Ona, the snow woman. She's beautiful with long black flowing hair, large black eyes, and skin as white as snow. She seems to be lost. They dwell on the roadsides and in the mountain passes, waiting to catch their human prey unawares. A single touch from the snow woman can reduce a mortal to devastating chills. If she really takes a dislike to you, she will take you into her embrace and steal your life force by freezing it out of you. She has been known to enter homes in the middle of the night and flash freeze whole families. But she isn't always unkind. From time to time, Yuki Ona will fall in love with her male prey. At times, she may even marry, but none of these marriages end happily. Let's see, where are we at? I think we got time for a couple of more. Uh, we have to save some for next Christmas, though, y'all. We can't cover all the spooky frozen things. All right, Magic Top Hat, who's next? All right, the Magic Top Hat has pulled the Mary Lloyd. Oh, another horse-like aberration, even. 
and she comes from Wells. Mary Lloyd dates back to an old Celtic tradition that would take place during the Old New Year. The gray mare is a bleached white horse skull with colorful streamers for its mane and glowing orbs for eyes. The old gray mare would bring luck to those who home she visited. Now she's been taken up and the people go from door to door caroling and receiving food and drink and thanks for the Christmas time visit from Mary Lloyd. Who's left in their magic hat? The Calic. She is of Gaelic origins in Ireland and Scotland. She is sometimes known as the Grey Hag, the Old Woman, or even the Queen of Winter. The Calic appears primarily as a veiled old woman, sometimes with only one eye. Her skin was deathly pale or blue, while her teeth are red and her clothes are adorned with skulls. She could leap across the mountains and ride storms. In the Manx tradition, which was part of Scotland at one time, the Calic was a shapeshifter capable of transforming into a giant bird. She is said to have created the landscape by using the weather she controls, ice and wind. Other legends say she carries a wicker basket that was full of stones, and wherever she dropped them, they formed mountains. Other lore says that she carries a hammer and a staff for the intentional shaping of hills and valleys. Also, the staff she carries can instantly leave a frost across the ground. Her other winter activities are herding deer and the literal fighting of the coming spring so that her rule might last a bit longer. Side notes. And you know what? I think I'm going to save the side notes for the recap show on the Patreon. But I will say this. I wonder if any history podcast out there has covered the history of Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. That was really interesting reading about. What else? Oh, my mom and I are going to Casadega for their Christmas time festival slash craft fair. Are any of y'all familiar with Casadega? Well, it's considered the spiritualist capital of Florida, maybe even the Southeast. I have never been, but their little festival seemed like a good time to visit. Casadega will definitely be getting its own episode one day. So y'all be looking for that. Um, They're supposed to be doing all kinds of stuff, not just like crafts, but there's gonna be like palmistry and tarot cards. And we're staying at their little, they didn't call it a hotel. They called it something else, like the sanctuary or something like that, I think. Um, but it was built in like the 20s. And they're supposed to be doing like a seance or something that night. So I think I'm going to sign us up for that. If nothing else, for the experience. And I'll have to um, let y'all know how that goes. That's coming up like within the next couple of weeks for us. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And y'all, I'm so excited about my Costa Dega trip. I almost left out the oldest house by state. Let's see who is next. We have got Pennsylvania. And it's a log cabin located on Darby Creek in Upper Darby. It's thought to have been built by the Swedish immigrants in 1640. 
the cabin was fully restored in 1987. Next, we got Rhode Island, the White Horse Tavern. From the picture, it looks like a huge red barn and was built first as a private home in around 1650, but it came a tavern in 1673 and has been serving drinks ever since. All right, y'all, one last thing before I close this out. Producer Mike and I thought we'd put together a little Yuletide giveaway, so a little goodie bag, so to speak, to a listener. To enter to win our little Lore of the South goodie bag, all you need to do is leave a five-star review and a few kind words on Apple Podcasts, and we will put your name in the magic hat and pick a winner the same way we picked our winter cryptids. I'll announce the winner on the Christmas episode, so y'all hurry and leave those reviews. Follow us on social media. I always post pics to go along with every single episode. Check out our Patreon if you really like what you heard. Just search The Lore of the South on Patreon.com. If you want to get in touch, you can email the show at loreofthesouth at gmail.com. And with that, y'all stay warm out there. And we'll talk to y'all on the next Lore of the South. Bye, y'all. Stay tuned for a preview of our latest Patreon episode. And then that brings us into the body of this episode. And y'all, I enjoyed doing this episode. This is like kind of my cup of tea history-wise and spooky history-wise is our, our learning about these different witch trials and, and what push them as far as what they went because I mean there are extreme cases like from what you heard here in the south they were kind of stamped out like the politicians and the you know courts and all of that they weren't hearing it I mean they were like it cost us less money to help feed this poor woman than it does to keep bringing her to trial because she's poor and you're tired of her sneaking vegetables out of your garden or something because she's hungry right so that's that's not a good reason to call somebody a witch yeah well and like you said it seemed like it was thrown around as an accusation just to get rid of even somebody you didn't like yeah Uh, i mean and and if your neighbor had something that you coveted which is a Mm -hmm. big no-no according to the ten commandments but, you know, you could accuse them because in these times, if you were condemned as a witch or even I think in Salem, well, that was Puritans, though, and they cray. Um, they got some stuff about that, too. Yeah. They're like, yeah, your property was forfeit. So mm-hmm. if your neighbor was looking to extend their property and be able to farm more crops or whatever and make more money. You know, they could accuse you of whatever they wanted. Oh, and it was so easy. They yeah. only needed like one or two other people to collaborate, collaborate, collaborate yeah. your well, story. And in the beginning, now this they couldn't do this in the South, but up in Salem, they could just have a dream. Mm-hmm. And that would be enough. Yeah. So we talked mostly about um, Grace Sherwood and what her life was like. And what kind of questions do you have about witch trials? And I'm, I'm pretty up on my witch trial info, so let, let's see if you can stop me. If you loved what you heard, check out the Patreon page for exclusive content by searching for The Lore of the South on Patreon.com.